0: Hey everybody, it is David Green here. As you all know, Brandon's stepping away from the show at the end of the month. Now, we have some great co-hosts lined up in the new year, and we also want to take this chance to get to know anyone else out there who's interested in contributing their talent to the Bigger Pockets Podcast Network. If you think that's you, you can make a submission to our system at biggerpockets.com/talent. That's biggerpockets.com/talent. You'll see a few questions and a place to submit a video reel of yourself. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash talent. If you'd like to lend your voice to the growing Bigger Pockets podcast
1: network, this is the Bigger Pockets podcast, show 547, where today we're going to sit down with Omni, the investor guy. He's going to explain everything from how to get your kids involved with your real estate investing, how to buy giant portfolios,
2: and a whole lot more. Stay tuned. Because I used to worry about who got you know, who got elected, yep. right? And 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 I vote and, and obviously I, I care, but my portfolio or my ability to invest got better and better regardless who was in just based on my experience. So the yeah. better investor you are, 100%. the market's really good for you.
1: What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co host, Mr. David Green. David, this is the show where we teach people financial freedom through real estate, right? And today is a perfect example of that, huh?
0: Yeah, and you're coming directly from a, what, 20,000 square foot suite that you have in Las Vegas right now? So
1: 70, I mean, I'm literally in a 7,500 square foot suite in Vegas right at this moment with our guest today. Omni is actually joining me in studio, in suite. And sweet today. That
0: sounds pretty sweet.
1: Yeah, this. Yeah, we're doing a. uh, I grabbed a bunch of my buddies, and uh, we're doing a goal setting day tomorrow. We're going to spend the whole day going through uh, goals for the next year. So I thought, why not rent a stupid nice suite for the event? And uh, that's what we're going to do. So I'm excited about that. But man, I can like literally see like uh, it's called 180. It's called like Suite 180. I can like see 180 degrees pretty much around.
0: You know what I love about what you're doing is first off, for most human beings to stay in a 7500 Vegas. 7,500 square foot Vegas (laughs) suite is an incredibly foolish decision that you would just treat yourself moment, right? Yes. So you actually found a way to structure this event so that enough value was created from the people that you brought together in the event you did, that the suite was paid for and the people who are there at the event are actually going to make money from being there. They're not even wasting their money by spending it to go hang out in Vegas. You did what we're all looking to do is how do you get the best parts of life and without having to feel guilty about it because you're doing it in a way that actually creates more wealth than you spent to do it. It's an investment, which is what we're all about here at Bigger Pockets.
1: Yeah, man. Well, and people are like, hey, I want to be in Vegas Sweet. Just, just grab a handful of your friends and just find out how much it costs to rent a cool spot because there's something magical about going to, this is today's quick tip by the way, quick tip, <laughs> I have no voice, by the way, I have no voice today because I just came from Nashville where I went out way too late and hung out at a honky tonk bar and yelled for like three hours straight uh, trying to over the music, so no voice, but today's quick tip is yeah, grab like a bunch of your buddies who are like goal minded and say hey let's get together and split the cost of a stupid, big, expensive, cool place, there's something magical about it like it's not to be 7,500 square feet, but just go out of the norm. Like take that intentional moment and divide the cost of what it's going to be and have a, cool, have a cool experience. Like there's so much that can be done in those moments where you pull out of the day-to-day and go into some special thing. So that's the quick tip for today is by the end of the year, try to do that with a, with a bunch of your friends and maybe just meet people in Pockets or organize it on the Facebook group, whatever. But yeah, pull some time out of your, out of your life to do this because I'm, I'm excited about tomorrow. So it should be a good time.
0: Well, the key is you're not going out to Vegas to get smashed and waste money gambling and enjoy yourself. And that's it. You're actually doing it with a purpose. That's going to create more value than what you spent to get there, which is what investing is, right? How do I put a resource into something that will give me a higher return than what I put in?
1: There we go, man. Well, that is today's show. So uh, here in live in Vegas, well, we're just, we're not live. We've never been uh, able to say that on the show. I'm also going to the UFC fight that played into it a little bit. It was like, why Vegas? Because the UFC fight was here. So I'm going to go do that.
3: If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where RentReady steps in. Now, RentReady's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid Certified Reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six-month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit rentready.com. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I dot and use the code BPINVESTOR. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, like me, to get six months of Rent Ready for $1, which is crazy. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income.
1: It's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return.
3: Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience.
1: Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today.
3: Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to rentoretirement.com today.
1: Now it's almost time to get into today's show. Hey, quick reminder for everybody, at the end of this year, if you haven't heard, I'm going to be taking off uh, from the Bigger Pockets podcast, handing over the reins to David Green. So in case you haven't heard the news, that's the news. I'm going to spend a year focusing, uh, or at least a while, focusing on my family and and a little bit more of the uh, open-door capital stuff that I'm doing. So anyway, I'll still be back on and off. I just won't be the regular guy every week. So uh, if you're wondering what happens in the future, that's what's happening in the future. But... You can still follow me on, you know, all the social networks, so you'll find me there. All right, so we got to get into today's show. Today's guest is Omni Casey, and Omni was actually the guy who won at that BPcon, the Bigger Pockets conference, we had a, a charity auction and he won chatting with me. Basically, basically like just one-on-one like uh, coaching. And then like the first time I talked to the guy, I realized, no, I should be getting coaching from him. <laughs> like this guy is legit. He is like incredibly gifted, talented and experienced when it comes to real estate. You're going to learn a lot lot of stuff today about, like I mentioned, buying portfolios. We talk about how the property manager can make or break your deal, how to invest at a distance, how to invest in your expensive market, how to do it with kids and a whole lot more. So that and more coming up here uh, today. Anything, David, you want to add before we jump in?
0: No, just make sure you stay all the way to the end because Brandon I and Omni all sort of go into Uh, a pretty good conversation about how to make sure that whatever you buy today is still profitable 5 10 15 20 years from now if the rules of the game change if we have different politicians different laws different uh financial structure in our country there's still a way to build your portfolio in a way that will keep it safe and profitable for a long time it's a discussion i don't think i've heard anywhere else so you definitely want to stick around and don't miss
1: that there we go all right well with that said let's get into the show with omni casey Omni which I called you Omni many times and you graciously allowed me to. Omni, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. Thank good you, to have you it's here. Not, thank you. Yeah, so we're going to dig into your story a little bit today. Learn a little bit more how you became the man, the myth, the Omni. You like that? It's pretty
2: good, right? And uh when we start at the beginning, how did you decide to get into real estate? Yeah, real estate. I mean, so I tell everyone I kind of like real estate, but I love business. At mm. some point, I realized that real estate was an amazing business, and so just kind of putting it all together. I grew up in Hawaii, you know, on the business track. Had a few small businesses. Actually, held owned a retail store at the mall. Oh, really? One, yeah. And then that's um, cool. <laughs> yeah, just kind of figuring out that the one winning in all that was the landlord. I'm looking at, you know I hated retail after you know having that, that uh, business up and running. And so I wanted to get out of that. And I saw all my friends that owned these shops that some were successful, some weren't. And really the, the one winner in the entire equation was the landlord. Um, so yeah. I said, how can I become a landlord? And I, I put some effort into finding out the best way to get into real estate investing, found a mentor and, or mentors, and I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. Awesome, man. Well, let's go through the very first thing you bought. What was the very first property? Very first property was a partnership. It was a condo in Waikiki. So it was just a rental property, a small condo property and did some sweat equity uh, renovations. And I did the grunt work and my mentor was a guy kind of leading everything. And uh, we kept that as a rental property. And and I did a few of those in that same building with them and eventually stepped out on my own and started buying my own property. So started out with a lot of condos and then completely did a shift away from condos, you know, uh, further on in my career.
1: All right, so let's talk about the condo thing, because you know, for those who don't know, Waikiki is an expensive, expensive area of of Oahu, of Honolulu, and it's it's a great place, but uh, it's very expensive. And how did you? I mean, how did you get the guts to do that? What did you pay for that first property? What was going through your head then when you're like, I'm gonna go buy this condo? Like, what was going through
2: your head? Sure, uh, I was just looking at my mentor. He's like, he's been doing it, and I, I trust this guy, so yeah. let's go ahead and go into it. So, mm. on the condo side of Waikiki, there's two different types of condos. So there's a regular, regular fee simple condos. And there's actually something called condo condotels, which mm. uh, which is zone for resort. And so I started on the regular side and realized that I couldn't Airbnb. Airbnb yeah. wasn't a thing back then, but couldn't go on the vacation rental side. And then eventually got into the condo condotel, uh, which brings its own challenges for financing. Much harder to get financing. Yes. But, you know, with a, a partner and mentor that was able to bring a lot of the capital, we were able to make it work.
1: That's cool. Yeah, you know, this is one of those benefits of as we said on the show for for years, but when you start associating with people who that's just like normal business for them, yeah. it's like it makes it so much easier for you. Like like for me, like I don't know, some random thing like hockey, right? Like I don't know anything about hockey. I don't know how to play hockey. I haven't skated since I was like four. And so, like, that would be incredibly difficult. But if I was, like, with somebody who was like, a professional hockey player, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you just put on your skates like that, and then these are the skates you obviously want, everyone knows, and then you obviously just stand up. And it, it is so obvious to them and easy that then I'd be like, oh, yeah, it is that easy. And you just listen to them, and then all of a sudden you're playing hockey. And I might, it might not be a pro right away, but it, it alleviates a lot of that fear. Yeah. So that, that's cool. All right. So what did you pay for that first one?
2: I uh, was in the four hundred thirty range. 430000 yeah. When was that? Almost 20 years ago. Yeah. Wow. What's that worth today? (laughs) Uh, We don't own it anymore, so we probably should, it's probably in the 750 would be my guess. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay.
1: So that's how you got started. So for those people listening in their inexpensive markets, like... Seattle, LA, New York, every other city in America. Now, Uh, what's your recommendation on getting started like that? Like where the price of a condo is four hundred grand. Sure.
2: Yeah, uh, finding a partner is obviously a a key element. But being from Hawaii, I had to learn how to quickly invest elsewhere. Very very similar to to uh, David. He wrote the book Mm -hmm. on this. But long distance investing, I had to figure out how to invest outside of you know our, our market there and and find the markets that I could afford to do things on my own.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense.
0: So at the time that you were starting your long-distance investing journey, I'm assuming this was before the book was written, so were you in a position where a lot of people were saying, this is crazy, you shouldn't be doing this, you're gonna lose a lot of money?
2: Yes, however, I didn't tell most people. Like, I, I, <laughs> I like I kind of, my, my mentor was very, private, right? It's like, a, a, own nothing, control everything kind of mindset. And growing up in Hawaii, there's kind of this inherent distrust that we have of people with money, and it's almost evil to, to want yeah. the success, right? So I literally went most of my, my investing career without talking about it, without, like, not even my parents, not even my, my siblings knew, and I just did it because I knew that they would say, it's crazy. And so I just wanted to prove it. If I was going to fail, I was going to fail by myself. Um, if I was going to succeed, then eventually, I guess I would told people, but I didn't get around. Around to telling people until, you know, really a couple of years ago.
0: Well, I think there's a lot to that too, because I think a lot of our listeners are in a position where maybe they're not Hawaiian, but they're in a family that doesn't trust people that have money, that assumes the only way you get money. I know, Brandon, you've talked about this, is you have to take advantage of somebody else. And that's kind of like a popular narrative that's going around right now that. If the CEO is making a million and the person on the front line is making twenty five dollars an hour, there's something obviously wrong with that scenario because one person's making more than the other. And for those of us that have sort of we function in that CEO role, we see the risk that CEOs take, we see the stress that they take, we see the investment of themselves they have to put into the company and the skill set they're bringing. Many times, I think if you took the twenty five dollars an hour person and put them in the CEO's role, they'd say, "No thanks, I don't want this. This is nuts." So I'm curious. You know, just hearing your story, Omni, I'm sure you went through a lot of self doubt. There had to be, as you have everyone in your world that you know believes what you're doing is maybe even morally wrong or at, at best risky. Then you have one mentor that you're watching and you're like, but that's the path I want to follow. Can you just speak briefly to the mindset that you had to develop in order to move forward in an environment like that?
2: Yeah, I don't know if so. I come from a big family. I'm one of eight kids, and I'm three. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I thrive in the middle. Yeah. And I, I, my whole life, I think I've been good at just kind of blending in in the background. Uh, love my family, amazing, amazing family. But I was able to just kind of step away and, and do that. And so I think I, I had that mindset from just growing up. I just tried things. Started a few businesses. Even my family didn't know about those businesses until they were out, off the ground and running. And I said, Hey, come to our, our launch. You're like, you know, what are you talking about, right? So yeah. I kind of took a very similar approach. And I. Think I'm just comfortable because maybe I'm, I'm a third of eight and I, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable in the middle there. Tell me
0: how you chose the market that you chose when you started investing out of state and then what struggles you found because you now don't have the backing of your mentor who's native to Hawaii and probably knows how to grease the wheels and knows the right people to talk to
2: yeah, so when I decided to break out on my own and do my own thing, well, I, I kind of, backing up a little bit, you know, wanted to, I was all over the place, right? So there's so much equity, you know, in Hawaii, there's a lot of appreciation, there's not a lot of cash flow, then all of a sudden, you know, swinged over to look at cash flow markets, this is amazing, but then you don't have the appreciation, the equity in those markets, right? Yeah. So I had to come to terms of the difference, so I kind of created this classification for myself, right? So I flip properties, I've wholesaled, I've done almost everything throughout my career, and And I had to understand that I was in a different role for those types of of properties. So, you know, I think uh, every investor falls into one of three categories. You're either doing it as a profession, full-time or part-time, right? That's a a flipper, that's a wholesaler, and it's a job, right? And it's a great job to have, and there's nothing wrong with it, but once again, your cash flow is gone, right? And then you have the financial freedom kind of area, which which I really wanted, was financial freedom, and it, then you're going to focus on the cash flow. But most of the best properties for cash flow don't appreciate that well, and we hear some people saying, well, you know, only do cash flow and appreciation is risky, or some people saying only focus on appreciation and cash flow is not going to make you, you know, uh, wealthy. And I just had to realize it's a different category altogether. So the third category is the generational wealth. Uh, once you're financially free, I was able to, to think a little bit differently. They so say, now I can focus on those different types of investments that do have higher appreciation, maybe don't have the cash flow because I don't need the cash flow anymore. So kind of put me into that category. So once I understood I wanted to be in that second category of financial freedom, then I really just looked at, okay, for this, three, four, five year period that I was trying to figure commit to becoming financially free, I'm gonna focus on cash flow with the understanding that at the end of that period, I'm gonna shift my strategy because I'll be financially free and the what I do next is a little less risky. That's such a great point. Yeah, like because you when
1: you when you view real estate that way, there are different types of investments for different purposes. And that's why like today, like I don't buy a lot of cash, like really cash flowing properties. Sure. Like I'm not, I'm not gonna buy properties that lose money, but I don't buy a ton like that because I have financial freedom. Right, So once you get over that, but in, to get financial freedom, like, like it's kind of like I would say this, I don't regret the properties that I bought back in Grays Harbor, Washington, but man, I would not buy them today. There was so much work, but they got me to financial freedom. So where were the properties that you started buying that got you to that financial freedom?
2: So I, I'm embarrassed on how many markets I tested okay. and, and uh, never did a ton in every single market. Okay. And really what I found was once I found a market that cash flowed, if I couldn't find that rockstar team, that property manager yeah. to support it. That might be the only property that it, so I've done in Texas. I've done in Georgia. And it wasn't until I found really markets that cash flow and I have a, a rockstar property manager. So there's a few pockets in Maryland, you know, okay. and there's, there's uh, some in Virginia as well that a lot of what I'm doing uh, recently is. And so, and it's not because they're the best cash flow markets because they're not, they, they yeah. cash flow to my terms, but I have a, amazing property managers and teams that could take care of it for me.
1: Who is the most important member of a team when you're going to go long distance real estate investing? Who should you, number one, make sure you have?
2: Yeah, I think the real estate agent is crucial. I, I eventually got my license and I understand I still hire real estate agents even though I'm licensed. Mm. If it's not my market, I will hire somebody to go do the due diligence for me, so crucial. But but in the long term, the property manager. If it's cash flow, your property manager is yeah. crucial. I think a, a really good property manager could take an average investment and, and make it stellar. Yeah, Right. yeah. You, on, the, on the other end, you can have have an amazing investment and you have a subpar property manager, it will eventually become subpar. And so that's a great uh, point. Understanding that, that key element within your team. Those sure. are my two key people.
0: Can you break this down into like a story that you can tell me about how the the same property, how one property manager can run it into the ground and how the other can make it flourish?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you got these rules of thumbs, right? The 1% rule is has been around for a while and I, I look for markets that, okay, can you hit the 1% rule and you'll have people screaming at us saying there's it's impossible and you're going to have people saying, well, I bought that yesterday, right? Yeah, so, yeah. it just depends on the market there. So, you know, kind of finding, you know, for cash flow, that 1% rule, understanding that I'm not looking at equity at, at the moment uh, within that phase. However, that 1% rule, if you buy, let's say, a very low low price property, $200,000 or so, um, the... the although you're hitting that 1% rule, you're getting a good return, one repair, one repair yeah. like takes out your, your cash flow for a year, takes yeah. out your cash flow, and and it's usually poorly managed properties that need the most repairs. And so if you have a let's say a fourplex, you know, in Georgia that, you know, is just mismanaged and when they move out, you're having to do, do a full turn of yep. five thousand dollars or whatever the case may be, all, all your return is gone. And yep. you can have a break-even property in a cash flow market if your property manager is not on top of it, setting the right expectations yeah. with maintaining the property.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point is that like like a great tenant when they move out, it might be a $200 turnover. A bad tenant when they turn over might be $5,000 or $10,000. And it's like, who decides who's going to be that tenant? It's the property manager. And so like, and I think uh, that, that turnover cost is something that a lot of investors don't think about because... Like that's probably the largest expense we have other than mortgage. Like in real reality, like the fact if if you have a regular turnover, like once a year you're spending five grand on turnover, like which is the case for a lot of my properties back when I first got started. and I didn't know how to screen tenants. Every year it was five grand, and I'm like, this is a lot of like this is just as much as my mortgage. And so that just shows you the power of that property manager in finding someone that not only is going to treat it well and you won't have the heavy turnover, but it's going to stay for two, three, four, five years. So over the course of five years, one property manager could lead to you know $30,000 in loss you know like negative and the other one could be 30000 more yeah. just based on those decisions that's made
2: yeah across my portfolio I, I try to as a rule of thumb re- reserve 10% of rents for, for maintenance and things like that that being said some properties in, in areas that aren't managed well probably need 30% you know some yeah. properties yeah. need way less just because they, keep, they run a tight ship so across the board and that's why I do like um, scaling up at a, a higher level and people say you know how can you you know absorb that risk I think I am uh, diversifying my risk the more properties I have if I have one property that is risky yeah right you have one tenant you have one maintenance bill and it might be 100% vacant at $10,000 you know a cost there but if you have 100 properties if you have 10 properties you're scaling up and as long as you have good people in place to manage it along the way you're actually reducing that risk and you can kind of reduce your overall cost if you do that
0: Yeah. You know, one thing, Brandon, you've told the story that when you first started managing your own properties, you sort of like were just really nice to the tenants and didn't hold them accountable to very much. And they they took advantage, to say the least. And then you learned I need to set very clear standards, and I don't let anything grow into something bigger. So if they're late on the rent, it's boom. You're late noticed. You were told this would happen. This is the process is being started and they weren't late anymore. So Omni, what you're kind of describing here is, are you getting Brandon at the beginning of his career managing your property or are you getting Brandon, once he figured it out, managing his property? Can you share with us some of the questions you ask property managers to figure out if which version of Brandon you might be getting?
2: Yeah, that's a great and, and and I would say probably my my weakest uh, element is is being able to interview and find these property managers because everyone interviews well. Right? Everybody, everybody, everybody interviews well. Interviews Dude, that's such well. a good point. Yeah, and, and the reality is yep. they might be a good property manager, yeah. but you're not the most important person to them right now. Which yeah. sounds terrible because I just bought one property. It's three units, and they have three hundred units they're managing. Right, so I'm their least important yes. client. And so what I my shift over the last few years has been, can I more center Centralized in, in areas and I started asking my property managers the ones I like what will it take for me to be your number one client like doors how many yeah. doors do I need to be your number one client because mm. I want to be your number one client I want to be the most important person because no matter how good they are if you are 1% of their portfolio they can't commit that amount of time to you but if you're 50% of their portfolio then they're going to commit a lot of time to you so, so it kind of I knew I need to become a better landlord yeah. and a better investor for my property managers so that they could take me more seriously Uh, I used to get angry about it but then I had to look at it from a business standpoint I was their least important client and um, so you take some pretty good property managers then you say I'm committed to become your number one client which means and and that's been a huge uh, lead flow for me because I tell them I'm I'm committed to you I want to buy more in your area so I'm gonna show them I add units every once in a while and but I I tell them any of your landlords that are looking to exit the last few years we had any of your landlords looking to exit Tell me about it. Yeah. Because they're going to come see you first. Tell me about it. I will buy their portfolio. I'll buy their properties. I'll keep it with you. So I don't, because if your property manager gets contact, contacted by one of their landlords saying we're selling a property, they know they're probably losing that property. Right, someone buys it to move in; they don't need a property manager. Yeah. Another investor buys it; they probably already have a property manager. So now, a lot of my properties come from my property managers in forms of small portfolios of landlords just saying, "I'm done." I, you know, yeah. I, I this COVID great, kind yeah. of you know kicked my butt. I, I think I want to get out just you know now that things are stabilized, and I've done a few of those.
1: I love I love that for a couple of reasons. One, because you're establishing this relationship with the property manager, and you're you're trying to become their top client. You're working with them, like they're going to want to make that push to help you know buy the portfolio so right they don't lose that that's cool but then also the property manager that knows the history of the property yeah. so they they're not hiding like there's not exactly. some seller hiding it yeah so you know what you're getting and i know they're like you don't we don't talk a lot about that but that idea of buying a portfolio is such a powerful strategy because like and there are a lot of investors today like myself included like i if somebody for the right price came i would probably sell my entire great harbor portfolio sure. in one shot right now now i'm gonna get hit up by like a million people right. but Uh, Now, does that mean like I'm, I mean, would I take a discount for that? Probably for the hassle of not having to go through, like I would probably sell, I'm not going to give somebody 50% off, but I would give the discount to somebody so I don't have to go through an agent. I don't have to get each one ready and then go through each of my numbers. It's, just, it's a hassle. Uh, I'm actually selling a lot of them right now on the MLS, and it's been a huge hassle. So. One at a time, yeah? Yeah, one and, at a time.
2: from the purchase standpoint, it's a hassle. So I set out this at the beginning yeah. of the year, a really big goal, 52 properties in 52 weeks. I've never done that. Oh, right? wow. yeah. And and so I just kind of wanted to stretch myself, right? So yeah. that's my goal. I'm, I'm at 44 purchases this year. I don't know if I'll get it by the end of the year. Come on, man. But, but You want to uh, buy my portfolio? Right? You'll have it. You'll be there. <laughs> The <laughs> only way is by doing portfolios. I, was, yeah. I lucked out. I got two mid-sized portfolios. Oh, man. I um, love it. And and you're you're solving a problem because a lot of these mom and pop landlords, let's say they bought them cash or they're paid off for a while. But then at some point, they went back and cross-collateralized them, right? Yeah. And they took out a loan across their entire portfolio because they got a lot of small properties, some great properties, some, some mediocre properties. And But what that means is if they got to sell, their bank, every bank's a little bit different, usually won't let them sell one property because they gave them a loan on oh. all properties yeah, that's a great so point. they need to find someone that can usually pay cash, right, and yeah. and buy the entire portfolio there. And so I've been able to do that to reposition, you know, uh, equity and funds to, to do that. And then obviously one by one, try to pull out, you know, use a burst strategy and 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 uh, re-leverage on the back end. But they cannot put it on the MLS because I it's just bought portfolio. one that was a a thirteen uh, building portfolio, and every single one was tied to the same loan. So they had to close same buyers, you know, exact same yeah. time. It's just complicated. So if you solve that problem, you can get a deal. I wonder if there's not a
1: way, and if somebody listening to this knows the answer, maybe you know the answer, is there a way to publicly... Like, using public data, find loans that go across multiple residential properties like that. If you could find that list, right, you would know every landlord who has those commercial loans over all their properties. I don't know if that's a thing, but that would be fascinating to figure out.
2: So, you, I don't know the, the automatic way to do it, but there yeah. is a way. So, you look at the, the, the tax records, right? And so let's say it's a $200,000 duplex and there's a $800,000 mortgage on it. Oh, all right, there's okay, There's something yeah. wrong there. You look up that owner in that state or wherever... You're looking for and say, okay, he owns X amount of properties. And then you're seeing that same $800,000 yeah. mortgage attached to all of these properties. Genius, so, man. There's a way, I don't know if there's an automatic way. Yeah,
1: I don't know either. But yeah, if somebody's listening to this right now and wants to figure that out. That would probably help a lot Fear of people out, buy yeah. portfolios. Yeah. Yeah. It's just such a cool strategy to, to the portfolio thing. Yeah. David, would you ever sell your. Portfolio, like, like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I know you're an agent, so you like the one off stuff. I mean, you're used to that, but if somebody came to you and wanted your whole portfolio right now, would you consider it? I would
0: absolutely do that. In fact, that might be the only way I could do it because when you try to sell a house that has a tenant already inside of it, in general, you don't get as much money for yeah, it. Yeah, it it's hard already. Yep. Y- you can't sell it to someone who wants to live in it. So now you're limited to investors who want to deal and they have to put 20% down. So your buyer pool shrinks quite a bit. Your ability to get multiple offers almost goes away completely. So you really want to try to sell rental properties when they're vacant, but my properties are not set to all go vacant at the same time, right? Like your leases were all signed at different times. So... You end up not able... You have to almost sell them ones and twos unless you package them all and you sell them to an investor. Now, I will say, if someone's trying to do that, there's probably not a better time in history to be doing it than right now because there's so much money out there. Everybody needs to deploy capital. So you can get away with things that you couldn't get away with before, but... Uh, yeah, I, that's just based on like the workload that people like the three of us have to trying to sell
1: them onesies, twosies like that is agony. The other reason that's really powerful right now this is going to go a little bit into the weeds, but it, it might affect some people. So when. When people sell a property that they're landlord, right? They want a 1031 exchange, it, but it's so hard right now to 1031 exchange stuff. And if you're selling your whole portfolio, one off, one off, one off, you got all these different 1031 things to try to do. You get all—it's just a mess, right? But right now, again, David, you go to this is the best time to do this. Right now, we've got this accelerated depreciation thing going on, and the cost segregation studies. So like, people can invest. Like, let's—like, I know people who have sold their property, not done a 1031 exchange, and then took all the money that they made that they have. To pay taxes on now. They just go and dump it into like my fund or somebody else's fund or, or their syndication. That syndicator, like like they will go and do the cost segregation study and the accelerated depreciation and it offsets almost the entire amount. So it's almost the same as a 1031 exchange without the actual effort of doing the 1031 exchange. And you're not in that pressure of like having to buy a bad deal within 45 days and identify it. So the, like, and that's a short window that the accelerated depreciation is ending here over the next five years. Well, right now, it's a, it's a cool time to do that. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's an
2: easy exit for the landlord yep. to do that. But, yep. but I, I look at it, and I'm not in big multifamily like, like you are. I have mid-sized multifamily properties and small multifamily. But I look at a portfolio like a mid-sized multifamily. Yeah. And yeah. I, I got flack for that because it's not the same. right? It's more work. It's it, it, I, I agree. However, you have one person managing it for you. Yep. You can, in the area, you can treat it like that. Um, but I like it because you can't buy a, a 50 unit building and decide these two underperforming units, we're just gonna sell off, right? It's not, it's not a condo. But on this portfolio, I can buy, you're, you're usually getting some really good properties, some average properties and some sub performing properties. I can still sell those sub performing properties probably at retail, yeah. wholesale them to somewhere else. And basically I'm left with at the end, mm, genius. just the cream yeah. of the crop. And I, I paid a premium in terms of having to come up with the upfront capital to do that. But that's short term because I'm gonna back out with leverage.
1: yeah. Dude, that's such a great point. You're just like cherry picking the best ones. And, uh dude, I love this. This is such a great strategy. This is going to change a lot of people's lives because like the idea of buying a portfolio is something that we've never really dug into on the show before. So,
2: and yeah. if you could find the mom and pops that don't have good property managers, right? Yeah. They're doing it themselves. They're stressing out right now, right? Cause yep. they had tenants that weren't paying. They had, ten- you know, and, and really we know that tenants paying is really a direct correlation yep. for the most yeah. part of your property manager being really good. And if it's yourself, I, I would be a terrible property manager. I know that if I managed <laughs> all my properties, my tenants would not be paying. I'd be yep. a high vacancy. They I'm not built for that. And some people, you know, they kind of started out small and they grew bigger than they thought. But the autopilot, you know, kind of wore off. And now they're they're, they're sub-performing properties for them.
1: You know, this is another call out to people listening who knows technology more than I do. If you could find a way to, like, automate the idea of, like who's done multiple evictions like if you could find that like the landlord's name in an area that they've done three evictions in 12 months like that's a really good indication that they're struggling and that they're a bad landlord uh, or at least they've, they've done a bad job of screening or whatever They're hating their life right yeah now. They're, they're, hating they're hating their, their they're life, hating right, their right, life now. right now absolutely. yeah I've always liked that strategy too of just like going to going to the county courthouse find out who's going through an eviction and you just hit them up because they're yeah whenever I'm going through an eviction or especially when I was like emotionally involved in it those are the moments I hated being a landlord and I would have taken any price just to take my property off my hands. It's just an easy strategy for if you're new to real estate and you're trying to find deals, like it requires like actually like talking to a human being. So it's a little scary and you got to maybe actually go to your courthouse because a lot of places don't keep digit. It's not online yet. It's still like paper and pencil sometimes. But by doing so, you're you're doing the work that nobody else is willing to do yeah. and you're going to get the rewards that nobody else is going to get. So uh, so let's shift back to your, your portfolio. What's it look like today? Like what's the size of your empire like today? So
2: uh, we're trying to get one per week. It's always shifting, right? Sure. But I, I broke the 100 property unit, uh, Mark, and I got single-family homes. I got land for development. Oh, cool. And I've got, you know, my biggest uh, property is an 18-unit multifamily. So I don't have, you know, large scales there. But uh, 100, 100, properties, 100 properties 100 units? 100 properties. 100 properties. Yes. So a lot more units than, lot than that. And a lot more units. And a lot of those Dude. are development projects that we're lining up. So I, I like buying vacant buildings as well. Yeah. Completely fixing them up and and burning them into the, uh, you know, uh, stabilize them and burn them out. Right now, I think uh, everyone's coming up with the the, the trouble of material shortage and things like that. But I've got a pipeline for the next two years of
3: projects to work on, so I'm happy with that. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like RentReady. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let RentReady handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid Certified Reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets, And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six-month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one-eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I dot and use the code BPINVESTOR. That's BP, like bigger pockets, investor, to get six months of RentReady for $1. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers a targeted 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of net profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, are first in line to get paid. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of a physical asset mitigate downside risk. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by directing your funds from Wall Street to Main Street and supporting local economies. The investment is reserved for accredited investors. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com/bp. pinefinancialgroup.com/bp. Want to dive deep into commercial real estate, entrepreneurship, leadership, and the economy? Tune into the Walker webcast hosted by the CEO of Walker & Dunlop, one of the largest commercial real estate finance and advisory services firms in the nation. As an unparalleled leader in commercial real estate, CEO Willie Walker frequently appears as an expert on major platforms like CNBC and the New York Times. He's even been on the Bigger Pockets podcast network too. On the Walker webcast, you'll hear from guests like A-Rod, renowned economist Dr. Peter Lineman, and experts from Walker & Dunlop's capital markets, research, and investment sales groups.
1: How are you finding deals other than the portfolio stuff? Any other strategies you're using that you're using right now?
3: Yeah, I mean,
2: so I, I became a, an agent broker, so I have MLS access everywhere. Okay. And I employ agents, you know, all over in areas that I focus on, and I tell them this is what I'm looking for. So I do look on market, and I do buy a handful of on market deals a year. And then wholesalers, you know, networking with okay. wholesalers. And I will say that when I started telling people that I'm investing in, like, for most of my career, I never told anyone. Just like yeah. the last couple of years, started telling, it became so much easier. Like, I just tell uh, people, yeah. this is what I'm looking for now. I'm looking for a small multifamily. I do flip a few properties a year, but the really, I'm looking for the, the duplex, triplex, quadplex is my bread and butter. You tell people and they, they send it to you. So whether yeah. they're official wholesalers or not, and then, you know, the big chunks come in those portfolios.
1: Uh, I love it. This is that thing we talk about all the time on the show is like, define what you want, like have an idea of what you want to go after. Like, oh, I'm buying duplexes or I'm buying small multi or I'm buying large multi. And then just tell everybody. It's like that simple. When people, when you're clear about what you want, everybody around you will conspire to get you that. Yeah. Like we do it all the time. Like if David was like, oh man, I just love, I don't know, whatever, uh, Red Bulls. Like, and we're all hanging out, I'm going to go to the store and get him a Red Bull because I want to be a nice friend of David. Or if I see a Red Bull, I'm like, yeah, I'll get that for David because I know he wants a Red Bull. But if, if, if he's just like, oh, I'm thirsty, you know, he, I, I might not be like, well, what, I don't know what he's going to want. I'm like, I don't know. And I'll get him something he doesn't want. I'm like, hey, David, I got you a, a coffee. And he's like, I don't drink coffee. So, yeah. Look, How's that metaphor, David? Was that a, was that a David Green That's metaphor? That's really
0: good. It, ma- it makes me think of when you're the agent and you're working for the client who doesn't know what they want. Yeah. And you're like, okay, what do you want to drink? And they're like, well, you know, I'm kind of open to anything. Yeah, I would take a Red Bull. I would do a Monster. You know, if it was a really, really good deal, I could look for a rock star. But, um, you know, I don't want to pass anything up. Yeah, And you're like, I don't know how to help you now. Yeah. Like, I can't go to the store and find yeah, that. Yeah, agents
3: right? hate that.
2: And, and, and people just don't have the ability to network... They they don't know that, right? Yeah. And, and you, you, you preach that. You guys both preach that. We ran a meetup. Uh, we do a regular meetup. We had about a hundred people last week at this investor meetup. Right. A little bit of education, and then a lot of go talk to someone that can do a deal with you. And but I had to start like, like doing the in short burst networking. You know, eight to fifteen minutes. But at the beginning, I remind everyone exactly: you can come up with your crystal clear t- criteria. Because if you say, "I'm looking for a deal," send me a deal. No one's going to send you anything because yeah. they just don't know. But if you say, "I'm looking for a portfolio," "I'm looking for a duplex in this area." in this price point that i can add value there's someone in this room that probably already has that and and can make that connection so he's just reminding us of how do we actually put that out there and tell people what we want well, it's also a good reminder, like when you see this, a lot of times
1: people are thinking, well, there's so much competition out there. I can't find deals because there's so much competition, but there are so many types of real estate. I, mean, I did a real estate meetup the other night. I was in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and I had about almost 100 people come out for this thing. And I'm talking to everybody like, what do you do? What do you buy? What are you into? And I think every answer was pretty unique. Like there, there was a few that were the same kind of the general, I buy like a single family houses in this, but most everybody has a unique thing. And so when you get a group of people together at a networking event or at a bigger, bigger Picker Pockets meet up or a RIA, and you just tell people, you'll find like, oh yeah, well if I ever see that, I'll let you know and then just keep track of that and then when you start letting other people know, hey, I found you a deal, now they're going to want to reciprocate back to you again, so that's cool. All right, let's move it to financing then, 52 properties in 52 weeks was the goal, you're almost there, you might hit it, we'll see, that's an incredible amount of money needed to buy that, so what are you doing for financing these days?
2: pulling equity out of properties Mm -hmm. or I'm really good at earmarking income for things. And so like Cash flow that comes in, it just doesn't come into our, our main bank account. We hide it from ourselves. And we ah. just let it pile up yeah, and pile same. up, and we've been doing that for years. And so the only thing we buy with our cash flow is more cash flow. Yep. And we have separate properties, very specific properties that are set aside for our lifestyle expenses, but that's it. And they bring in predictable amount of income, and that, that's all we need. But if we saw all the cash flow coming in, sure, our lifestyle would, would definitely creep, as I think David David uh, calls it, and uh, we'd be spending a lot more, but we're really good at, at doing that. So we're able to self-fund most of this. Through our cash flow. That's great. Um, And then pulling out through equity. You know, it cheaper. You know, it's the cheapest way to get money right now is is um, your first strategy.
1: Yeah, I call that cash flow recycling, right? It's like your cash flow, you just recycle it and you put it back into the machine and it makes more cash flow and you put it back. It's like a snowball. It's like Dave Ramsey's debt snowball, yes. but it's like wealth, the wealth yes, snowball, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you just build wealth and you put the wealth back into the machine to build more wealth. And that snowball is incredible. And, and so when people hear sometimes, they're like, well, I could never buy all that, you don't need to. Start with one. If you bought one property that cash flows. 300 bucks a month. That doesn't seem like a lot of money. So after the end of the year, you're making what, three, four grand? You dump that back in though again. Maybe that'll get you some direct mail letters. Maybe it'll get you a little, you know, half another property or you partner with somebody and you you divide it up. But then two years later, you got enough for another one. And then one year later and then six months later and then three months later and pretty soon that wealth snowball is just flowing down a hill and just gaining speed at such ridiculous rates. And then you're just like, I'm trying to buy 52 properties in 52 weeks. So like, And it's not a crazy thing because you've got that momentum going. So that's awesome. I love that. All right, man, where's the market headed? <laughs> yeah. Crystal ball time, you see a lot, you're an agent, you buy in a lot
2: of areas. Yes, Where's headed? Supply and demand is, is kind of keeping us in, in a, a comfort area, I think, right? So I, I'm not worried about the market, and people, you know, the moment people start to say, Hey, should we pause a little bit? That's when I really want to ramp up my purchasing power for that that exact reason. Um, you know, I think we've got several really good years ahead of us in terms of you know appreciation. But once again, it really depends on what bucket you're buying for. So okay, if you're buying yeah. for cash flow, it doesn't matter too much what the market is because the rents are not coming down, right? Yeah. The, the rents are staying consistent. I think the rents are going to continue to go up. Uh, I think I've heard both of you guys mention this. You know, we're probably going to see more and more government intervention in terms of making uh, housing affordable, making yeah. housing right, right, and, and more of the the Section 8 and the housing programs. One of my biggest tenants is the government, and they've never missed a payment. Right? Yeah. So I'm yeah. okay with that as long as you manage the expectations with the property manager.
1: Will you explain that for those who don't know what you mean by that? Why is the government one of your biggest tenants? If you're
2: in a, let's say you buy a studio or one bedroom and your your price point is, you know, four to $600 rent, right? So that is a low income rent there. And so your average tenant is going to be someone that needs assistance. Okay. And I know a lot of people that don't want they don't want to touch section eight. They don't want to touch government assistance, but it's a guaranteed check, mm. right? So all it is, is replacing income that they don't have. Yep. We still need to vet that client. We need still need yes. to vet that tenant to make sure that yeah. they're a good tenant and a good, there are bad tenants that are not on section eight, right? And they'll trash your house. There are great tenants on section eight that will take care of it. And especially if they go through the, the, the work of getting that secured, they really don't want to move. They, they are longer term tenants than your average tenant. They, instead of a one year or two year stay, they're like, can I just live here forever? Sure. Like, yeah. you, absolutely. David, where's the market headed?
0: I think that we are going to see a lot more inflation. To be fair, when the shelter-in-place first kicked in, we were doing this podcast and everyone was playing Chicken Little. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. And I remember I took a stance, and Brandon, you kind of supported me on it, that I just don't think that's going to happen. It's not popular, but I think we're going to stimulus our way out of this and we're going to have inflation. And I took some heat on that, and now I'm looking pretty smart. I don't know how many people remember what was (laughs) said back then. But you're seeing what's happening is, even if you made bad decisions, that rising tide bailed a lot of people out. And that is good in the sense that owning assets is very, very powerful because your money is becoming worth less. It can be problematic in the sense that these syndicators that are raising money and they're deploying it are, can operate fast and dirty and not very well. And they could make it work just because rents are rising across the board quickly due to inflation as well as property values and then cap rates depress. So even if you made bad decisions, your property became worth more because there's more demand to get into it. But at the point where that stops, you may be, find yourself with an asset you don't want to own that you can't manage very well and you're not being bailed out by inflation. So I would say in the short term, As weird as it is to say, the majority of deals that anyone does are going to look really good. Just they're going to be propped up by inflation. It's just how good you do. And then at a certain point, if we get inflation under control, we get our monetary policy under control. That's when you're going to find out who's been swimming naked when the tide goes back down. So my personal philosophy is it sounds very similar to Omni's. I want to own an asset in an area that I like owning that does not drain me of my energy, of my time. Even if it's not the most cash flow strong thing, I don't want another job. I want it to be more passive income, and I'm willing to play the long game. And I think that the metrics that our government is creating support that strategy. I just want to caution people that are buying. If you're going into a D-class neighborhood and you're trying to make something work, it might look good for the time being because you're watching your assets value increase, but you're still going to be stuck with that thing when the music stops. And Is that what you want, right? I wouldn't mind owning something in Waikiki when the music stops. I don't know that I want to own it in one of these like stereotypically bad areas that aren't good for landlords. So yeah,
1: I hope that kind of answers the question. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, you know, this morning, my COO Walker texted me and he said, Hey, just food for thought for a fun conversation starter. What's the biggest risk to my company, you know, ODC and over the next 12 to 24 months, right? And I was like, "Oh, that's a good question. What is the biggest risk to us, right? And I thought, the biggest risk is that if inflation hits, and I'm curious you guys have thoughts on this, if inflation hits really hard, like harder than we expect, and especially if it hits in the rental market, where from supply and demand and from inflation from everything else, but the average rent, let's just start going up 20% per year, let's say. Now, that sounds really great for us, right? Because our mortgage is the same. But the risk is in the politicians. Will they just, you know, uh, just put like a cap, like whether it's nationwide rent control and be like, you know what, we're cutting all rent in the U.S. by 30% starting tomorrow. Like there was some like, like lady in Seattle uh, on the uh, Seattle like city council who like proposed like that all landlords have to give their tenants equity in their properties. Like like it, now it didn't go anywhere, but like that's there's a a segment of the U.S. pop uh, U.S political spectrum who would be okay with a thing like that. So I think that, anyway, that's what I think is the biggest fear is if we see too much inflation or too much problem with rent growth, we're going to see a, a backlash because, Hey, I want to get reelected next session. How am I going to do it? I'm going to make everyone's rent go down and I'm going to be known as the guy who made everyone's rent go down. So I don't, that's my fear. You Have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. So the, the political spectrum does play, um, uh, I think it affects the newer investors the most. And and, and how's the market I think is, is uh affecting everyone, but I think it affects the newer investors the most because I used to worry about who got you know, who got elected, yep. right? And 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 I vote and, and obviously I, I care but my portfolio or my ability to invest got better and better regardless who was in, just based on my experience. So the better investor you are, the market's really good for you. If you are a brand new investor, guess what? It's a tough market. You gotta buy your first property and not be a brand new investor anymore. And then (laughs) next year is gonna be a better market for you. And if you do that two years, next year is gonna be a better market for you as well. And and really it's gonna be directly proportionate to your experience as an investor versus what's happening politically or, or in the market in general.
0: This is such a good question that you asked, Brandon. Did you have a point you wanted to make? No, go ahead. Continue. I don't know that any other podcast in the world is talking about what we're saying right now. It just doesn't get brought up. And so I want to make sure we don't gloss over it because I think this is really powerful. The problem with following the herd, like, well, Omni is investing there, so I'm going to go invest there or short-term rentals are hot. I'm going to go get a short-term rental is you're putting a target on your back. Okay, so you hear a lot of prominent real estate investors that will brag openly and publicly I don't pay any taxes. This comes up all the time. All that does is send a message to politicians that, oh, really? And so they go to the tax code and all the ways that we benefit, like accelerated appreciation, 1031 like-kind of exchanges, the things that are actually healthy for the economy because they encourage people to invest their money and create jobs and create wealth and improve things, they're just going to take it away. They're like, oh, that's what you're doing to not pay taxes? Well, we're going to remove all that. And now it actually makes it harder to build wealth through real estate than it would be through other markets means. And I think that when you're following the herd, you put yourself in a position where you can easily have like the branch you're standing on chopped off. So the advice that I would give to people is that you have to take action, but you can't assume that the environment you're buying into right now is what you'll have in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, that you need to be thinking about exit strategy. So if you're buying an apartment complex simply because of the tax benefits that you get, And like Omni said, or you said, Brandon, they come in and say rents are now being capped at this percentage of whatever the median income is for that area. And you can't raise rents enough to make it worth owning. And you're stuck with the headache of owning that property over and over and over. You can't cry victim you knew going into this that like politicians make rules that affect how that works. And right now, a lot of those are in the real estate investors favor. The tax code is written in a way that encourages development of communities, but that may not be the case all the time, regardless of if we think that's stupid or not, that could happen. So when you're making these decisions, if you're buying into an area with a very expensive short-term rental, you're paying $2 million and you're just like, Oh, the gross revenue is incredible. This is going to change my life. What are you going to do in a year? If they come in and outlaw that, what if the hotel lobbies all Gather together and say no. We're not letting that happen anymore. And the politicians go against you, and you're stuck with a twenty-five, thirty thousand dollar mortgage payment. And you can only rent it out for five grand a month. I think today's investor that's making moves. Should still be aggressively going after what they want, but you you need to be playing chess. You got to be thinking a couple steps ahead of where you are right now to protect that wealth. Because I do think that like what you said, Brandon, there's a politician who's saying we think that landlords should have to give equity to tenants. If that catches steam and it starts to pick up, like I think Omni could probably speak about that better than anybody living in Hawaii as he's seen how easily the masses can influence the way that the laws are written.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a sketchy, scary proposition. So what do you, David, what do you suggest? And Ami? Mean, what do you suggest for to best prepare yourself against a changing economy or a changing government? Because I don't want people to walk away from this interview being scared, right? Because I, like you said, like, it doesn't really matter who's in, as long as we're smart, we're going to figure out a way. But so what are some tangible things people can do? Either one of you got an idea? I'll let you start, Omni.
2: Yeah, uh, I think uh, you guys hit on on the the key points here, but when I buy a property, especially if it's cash flow, right, it's a little bit safer on the cash flow side because you have cash flow, right? If if things change, you have it, but if you have a drastic change in in rents there, When I buy a cash flow property, I would love to not ever have to sell that. I do sell my properties, but I'd love to never have to sell it. But I absolutely think at what is the one or two exit strategies that I have. Exactly what David said. Do I need to cash out? Do I need to pull my money out of this? Do I, can I sell this if we drop at 10% and I'm still okay with that return there, right? So I have, you know, kind of triggers of what makes sense if I need to exit. And if there's something drastic across the board, you just need to know when you're gonna make that move.
1: Yeah, that's really good. David, anything you
0: want to add? What I love about this podcast is we don't fall into the trap that our competition does the other podcasts, where what most people do is they recognize what's trendy right now, short-term rentals. So they make the short-term rental podcast, and every episode is about someone who crushed it with short-term rentals, and you can too. And if you buy our short-term rental course, we can teach you how to do it. And they capitalize on like like in football, like the wildcat offense was really popular for a while. There's always a gimmick in any sport that's working good before defenses figure it out. And they just hammer that point home and they make you think all you need to know is this one little thing. And it caters to the worst part of human nature that's like, just tell me the quick answer. Just tell me where to invest. Tell me where to find the house. I just want to do it. I don't want to have to learn how to do this. I just want to be able to get myself wealthy in, in a year or two. What we do is we actually force you sort of to listen to us talk about all the different tools that you need in your tool belt to make this worth the strengths and the weaknesses of individual markets and individual strategies. And when you understand that it's like knowing the game of football, not just knowing the gimmicky play, it doesn't matter what the government throws at you. It doesn't matter what the economy throws at you. If you have these tools in your toolbox, you will adapt to what happens. So my advice would be like always consider area first location first. There's a lot of people going to Midwest markets and buying turnkey homes. And in this climate that will work because you're seeing a lot of inflation and it's not that hard to rent out a property. Well, if the economy goes down, those areas tend to get hit the hardest because they don't have as many options as far as like employment opportunities. And those properties are typically difficult to manage. And if you're not seeing a lot of appreciation, you're gonna lose money as soon as the HVAC goes out. Or like you said, Brandon, you have one bad turn that costs you five grand, your cash flow for a year and a half is gone. You're sort of pigeonholed into a bad location that worked in a climate with rising tides but doesn't work anywhere else. So you start off by saying, where are the thriving areas that people are moving to and businesses are moving to that if my short-term rental strategy doesn't work, I have a backup plan. I can turn it into two units or three units. I can go corporate housing. I can rent it out and maybe lose three or 400 bucks a month as just a regular rental, but in two or three years, I'm okay again. Or I could sell it because somebody wants to live in it to buy there and I can get my capital out. And reinvest to the better place. That would be the best thing that I could offer is don't just get locked into looking down the scope of, you know, your analyzation tool and only seeing cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, or you know, whatever that the flavor of the month happens to be in real estate investing.
1: Yeah, very good. Really good stuff. Um, what is the cash flow breakfast club?
2: Cash I saw that written money. somewhere. Right. So I probably blame this on you guys. So I've been a closed book for most of my life, right? In hiding, ashamed <laughs> of being an investor. Um, and and then I found bigger pockets, right? Yeah. You guys are talking about it, and it's 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 cool now, right? And and it wasn't cool when I started, or at least I didn't feel it was. Yeah. Um, and then the more I listen to you, like. The more guilt I had of not sharing what I know, right? Mm-hmm. Because my, my friends, my family, my, my own agents that I, I, I love dearly have not taught them anything along those lines. And you're having conversations with somebody about a transaction, you're just thinking, why are, why does this even matter, right? You know, we're talking about such a small piece when most people are not focusing on their financial freedom. So a couple of years ago, you kind of decided to start coaching agents my agents you know to become financially free and help them buy rental properties and then we slowly opened it up to their friends and their family and, and things like that and and then my family have been able to buy with them but it started with this agent investor club and we just called it the breakfast Club just because you know just yeah. for it to play on the movie but it was focused on cash flow and so we met we talked about it and it allowed me to a safe space to take off my broker hat take off my agent hat and say all right I'm an investor. You've never heard me say any of this before. This is something different. This is something I'm not telling you as an agent, Not some telling, I'm telling you as, as as, a broker, but we're going to talk about investing and we're going to dive deep into it. And if you're going to be in this club, you're committing to buying a property in a year. And if you're going to be in this club, you're committing to buy X amount of doors in X amount of years. And you could leave if you're not comfortable with that. But I want everyone in here to be comfortable being an investor, yeah. stepping outside of their comfort zone and doing it on a regular basis so that you guys can go spread the word to your friends and your family and kind of ripple through effects. So it's an actual club that I started and I wrote a book several years ago. Never publish it. Didn't have a name. Really? Yeah. Never publish it. And and I. Uh, oh, come I, on, man! You got to publish. Okay, keep going. Tell I those thought those about books. publishing it uh, under an alias because once again, it's the step-by-step process of what I did to become financially free and what I think most people could do to become financially free. Problem: It was my story, and I wasn't mm. ready to tell that story. I wasn't ready to tell anyone I was I was doing that. So, thought about using it, uh, publishing it as an alias, and just kind of put it on the back shelf. Once I started this Cash Flow Breakfast Club over the last two years. One, I love the concept. And so I kind of rewrote the principles of the book through a power parable almost right so a a fictional story of a guy that happened to grow up in Hawaii that happened to be an investor and and things like that and I was able to remove myself from the story and keep the principles in there but really it's 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 a story of this guy that you know just doesn't know what he wants but knows he wants to do something other than work for you know 30 plus years and retire at 65 Uh, he stumbles across rich dad poor dad he plays the you know cash flow quadrant game Um, and then he finds a group he finds a mentor he finds a club that helps them helps him understand the, what you talked about—the stacking effect yeah. of, of your cash flow properties—and then understanding that once you become financially free, there's a whole nother world of investing that's not cash flow related, and, and jumping out of that. So that's kind of the crux of the book, and it basically all the the lessons that I've taught my agents over the couple, last couple of years are just thrown into this book. So if someone says, I need help, it's like, here, it's all in here, read through this. If this doesn't scare you, then we can talk.
1: Yeah. That's
2: so good, man. So you, is it officially out? Do people
1: can so they go it, get
2: it by the end of the year? My goal is to have this published. So it's, it's written, it's ready to go. All so right. I have one unpublished copy right all here, right. and this is like my my training manual that I that I use from. And by the end of this year, I, I think I'm I'm hopefully going to get this published. So all right, man. Well, let me um, let yes. me
1: help you with that. I've done it a few it, times. It, exactly. Uh, right? We're gonna get this thing out, and uh, we'll put links at the show notes. I don't even know what the show. Yeah, five forty seven. So you can go to biggerpockets.com/show five four seven and. We We'll have a link in there to the book. Even if it's not out by the time the show airs, we'll have a link to maybe like a landing page that yeah. they can go put their email in and then they'll get it when it comes out or you'll uh, be able to send them uh, where they can buy it from or get it. So... Yeah. Yeah, we'll make sure that everyone can get it because that's awesome and uh, you had a cool story. So w- last question before we move to the
2: famous four, where are you headed in the future? What do you what do you foresee for Omni? So I was mentioning this before we got on. This feels like a therapy session for me. Yeah. You know, we were speaking uh, last week or a couple weeks ago as well. Yeah. And and I haven't been thinking that big. I haven't really been thinking about like, what are my big goals? I have three young kids that they're my world, right? My oldest is, is 12, my, my daughter is nine. She's like our, our investment CEO for my family. And then my youngest is uh, seven. So everything I'm doing now is investment related, but can I do it nearby, closer by, so that I can involve them? So I'm trying to figure out a better way to have dialogues with children about this, right? And we play the cash flow breakfast, the cash flow uh, game, you know, quite often that helps, but they, they're they out with me on the weekends, you know, every single weekend looking at properties. And, you know, I think there's a need for that because I think there's people that are age or, or older that yes, they, they like investing. They do investing or they want to get into investing. But if you can think about the next generation to come yeah, yeah. and how can you instill the things that we never talked about, you know, growing up. Right. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure that out, but I'm, I'm got three test cases with my kids right now, every single weekend. Yeah. How are and they're telling me exactly what's working and what's not working?
1: Yeah. What are you doing? Like, what are some things that you're doing to pass on, not just the
2: wealth, but more importantly, the knowledge that comes with it. So what are you, what are you doing with your kids? Yeah. We started out with the, the cash flow game playing that, okay. you know, quite often, almost every single weekend. And now oh, we've got cool. my kids that, That can, we used to uh, help them on the game, uh, but now they can play on on themselves. And my my son wins quite often (laughs) against us. Whenever we're looking at properties and analyzing properties and walking through properties, I usually have one of my kids, if not two of them walking through and just taking notes and say, here's what we're going to be doing here. And then most recently when we started a meetup, I started to bring one of my kids. Usually my daughter fights to be the one to go. And she like sits through, we have an educational moment, right? Like an hour of education. And she just kind of sits through the details of it. Like, we started talking about inflation last week, and, you know, then she comes back and say, well, why is money losing value, right? And so, she came to the next one, and she's like, I'm raising my hand to talk about what inflation is, and she wants to kind of put it out there. So, I think it just exposing them to the dialogues and the conversations, and I've been more open about, um, you know, putting it out on on Facebook uh, over the last few months, telling people about it to start this uncomfortable conversation, because if we can have that uncomfortable conversation with our friends, our family, and our kids, it becomes more normal at some yeah. point.
1: Yeah, man, that's awesome really good stuff. I want to relate back on uh, a, a metaphor or analogy I used in the beginning of the show and I, I'm just going to put it together in my head right now. But remember I mentioned hockey earlier. Like if you want to be able to be good at hockey, hang out with somebody who plays a lot of hockey and it, it's so easy for them, right? But a thing I never really thought of before is like that's why we need to involve our kids in what we're doing. Not that they have to know everything and not that we they have to be real estate people. But for us, talking about inflation is easy. For us, talking about cash flow is easy. For them, it's not. So the more that they get into that world of talking about financial things. It's like we're the ho- we're the professional hockey player, and our kids the one that, and that way we give them that training without like sitting down and be like, all right, today's lesson is this. It's just they're involved, and in, because we want to make it so when they graduate high school or go into the world, like oh yeah, just cash flow that concept that most of us never knew. Sure. Like that, that's just easy. It's just like putting on a pair of skates. So, dude, this has been amazing. We're not quite done though. We got to head over to the last segment of the show. It is time for our. Famous for- The Famous Four. It's the part of the show where we go through the same four questions every week with every guest. And uh, this week, we're going to ask Omni these four questions. So number one, Omni, favorite, either all-time or current, real estate-related book.
2: Yeah, it's going to be the same book everyone does. And I book them together, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and Cashflow Quadrant. I I think they have to be together. And and it's what changed my life is what changes every... It's the first book I recommend anyone read before they ask me for help. Yep. Love it. Love it. Next book, what is your favorite business book? There's a lot of good ones. Probably my all-time favorite is the Goal Giver. There's a Goal Giver series. You know, it's it's just the not keeping score concept, right? You know, I think this comes from my guilt of hiding all this time and not sharing. And so now I just really want to, you know, share with as many people as possible. It's not a business for me. I don't get paid for coaching or anything along those lines. But it it is very rewarding. And I've done more real estate in the last few years than I've ever done because I started to give, right? And so the more I teach, the more I help, I do realize it comes back tenfold. And so it's a really good parable, really good story for anyone, any business, you know, uh, to follow. Awesome, dude. All right. What about some of your hobbies? I used to um, water everything. Water used to be my hobby. When I moved away from Hawaii, it hasn't been uh, you know as as ideal. Yeah. Where so. are you where are you at now? So I'm out in Northern Virginia, actually. My okay. wife's from there, so we moved moved there. It's closer to some of the properties that that we've uh, invested in. So her family's there, so uh, it was a family move a while back. So no, not a lot of water things going on. Really, I, I'm embarrassed to say my hobbies are real estate investing with my kids, and so That's cool. there's nothing I look forward to more. And and, and and real estate investing by my fun myself is okay and fun. You know analyzing deals and things like that. But like it, we just, it is a family event to go out, you know, and drive and walk through properties. We're buying this property or what do you think we should offer? And so we just kind of make it a game and um, my kids like it for the, for the time being, I think. Awesome, man. Very cool.
1: All right. Well, my last question of the day, what do you think separates successful real estate investors from those who give up,
2: fail, or never get started? Yeah, I've heard, so many people answer this question, and there's so many really good answers, and there's no one right answer. But I think it's two two part questions, right? So the first part is not get started. You just got to get over the, the fear of failure, right? People don't get start because don't start because they know they're going to fail, or they're worried about failing. Yeah, you're probably going to fail. Everyone fails to some level. Every property you have will have failure involved in it. You have to be comfortable knowing that that's just step one. But for those who give up without starting, I think it comes down to a concept that. I, that I put in the book is what well. I call it the three batteries, right? We all have three batteries, at least starting out in investing, and one battery is our time right? Mm-hmm. One battery is our capital, the money we can bring. And one battery is debt to income when you're, when you're using leverage. And I think people make the wrong move starting out, use up too much, too much of those batteries to start. And it kind of puts them in a pigeonhole to say, well, like I'm maxed out at one property, I'm maxed mm-hmm. out at two yes. properties. So I think putting that right plan in place of where you actually start is helpful. And most people that we've helped over the last couple of years really were at a place of, they gave up, they bought a property five, six years ago, but they they kind of hit a wall and so kind of putting into that succession the right what kind of properties i should be buying first is is probably the the easiest way for people to kind of move forward and do this full time
1: all right man i love it i love it well thank you very much for joining us today it's going to be a great episode people are going to love this thing it's going to change a lot of lives so david i guess uh i'll give you the final question as usual where can people find out more about you Um
2: TikTok. I'm all over (laughs) doing your dances. (laughs) That's what I thought. Not on TikTok. I'm on Facebook, uh Omni the Investor Guy. O M N I the Investor Guy. And I'm on Instagram. I'm I'm embarrassed on how little I do on Instagram. I'm trying I'm trying. We're gonna Um, get you there, man. Yes. You need to be
1: omnipresent.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was taken. So I'm just omni the investor
1: guy. I love it, dude. All right, well, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. And uh David, thank you as well for uh, joining us today. It was a blast. I really appreciate your insight. You can tell that
0: there's a lot of wisdom that's coming out of you and that you also have a very good heart. So thank you for coming and sharing what you're doing and sort of letting us take this show and make it less about specific tactics and more about overall how you build a healthy portfolio that will last for a long period of time. Because it doesn't matter how much wealth you build if you end up losing it.
2: Absolutely. Thank
0: you. This is David Green for Brandon. He's on TikTok and you know he won't stop. Turner
3: signing off. All in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha.